This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. So we received a report, tug hit Bly Reef. They felt as though they had compromised the integrity of the boat and that fuel was spilling, which is like kind of a nightmare. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems. I'm excited to welcome Captain Aaron Williams to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast today. Captain Williams serves as commanding officer of the U.S. Coast Guard's activities Far East Division, where she leads teams in Japan and Singapore who conduct regulatory oversight of U.S. commercial and national security vessels and assess foreign port security across Asia and Indo-Pacific regions, which is an incredible thing, like, like given like with the security environment and the blurring of lines between you know, military and non-military in that region and the, some of the activities that China's doing. That's a pretty critical <laughs> portfolio that you're handling. Erin has commanded port and waterway security, marine safety, defense readiness, and marine environmental protection, marine missions at three units reaching five continents. Leading operations in Alaska, the Great Lakes, and California, she worked closely with industry, government, and tribal leaders to maintain the integrity of the U.S. maritime transportation system. Among many other roles that you performed, Captain Williams is also a 2022 fellow with the Halifax International Security Forum's Peace with Women Fellowship. And we are broadcasting to you or podcasting to you today from the Halifax International Security Forum. So, Captain Williams, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I'd love to start with your origin story. What inspired you to join the U.S. Coast Guard? Well, I wish I could say it was some crazy story, but I'm from Kansas, originally born and raised, Mm -hmm. good old Wichita, Kansas. Far from the coast. (laughs) (laughs) They say people from the Midwest make the best sailors because you just see flat and so you just see nothing for days. Maybe it was meant to be. And I actually had four women in my class from Kansas. Oh, that's hilarious. one of the highest classes of women as well. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of family in Alaska, and my parents sent me up there for a couple of summers just to get rid of me and expose me to life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was in Juneau for two summers during high school, during Mm -hmm. which I met a couple of Coast Guard officers who were good friends with my uncle. And I just got to know them a little bit. And funny enough, we didn't talk much Coast Guard, but I could see who they were Mm -hmm. as, Mm -hmm. as humans. Yeah, sure. And coincidentally... Back in good old Kansas, my high school counselor kept shoving this like eight page pamphlet (laughs) from the Coast Guard Academy at me, you know, back in the day before the internet, Mm -hmm. when you made all of life's decisions based on a bunch of pictures. Uh, So, and it was actually the only school I applied to, really, which my parents didn't really appreciate too much. (laughs) And I joined the Coast Guard to attend the Coast Guard Academy, not to join the Coast Guard. 
Okay. Okay. So that's kind of my perspective. It looked like a, in a sick way, maybe a fun school. Sure. I could sure. continue some activities I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the summers at the academy where we really get exposed to what I'll call, quote unquote, the real Coast Guard. Sure. And they send cadets out on really exceptional summer programs to yep. get exposure to what life is like in the Coast Guard. Where did you go? I actually came up here to Halifax really? uh, <laughs> on that tall ship Eagle. And gosh, it was so long ago. I've been trying to walk around and reminisce. So we spend a summer on the Eagle and then we go to the range and learn how to shoot. And we'll mm-hmm. go down to Mobile, Alabama and learn about flying. Nowadays, they send folks to small boat stations. And then usually your senior summer before you graduate, you go to a cutter. Okay. Yep. As a ship, right? And spend your entire summer there, either in the deck department, learning how to drive the ships, or in the engineering department, learning how to fix things. Why have you decided to stay in the Coast Guard? I think it's changed. Yep. Um, sure. So I graduated 24 years ago, and I still actually have my letter of resignation from probably 21 years ago. I never submitted it, mm-hmm. and I had my first child in 2002, yep. and my husband and I realized this is a good thing we have. We're, yep. It's a great organization, very humanitarian-based. I was just at the beginning of my career, and there were lots of opportunities, and carrots kept getting dangled in front, <laughs> and uh, we just decided it was uh, how we wanted to raise our family. As I've transferred around the world, really, I've been exposed to these opportunities where I've really seen that and learned how well-respected the U.S. Coast Guard is around the world. And I really like being a part of that. That's fantastic. So you've experienced events such as vessel sinkings and groundings. And one instance in particular was response to a tug that hit the Bly Reef two days before Christmas during an ice scouting mission for tank vessels transiting Prince William Sound. Mm -hmm. So could you set the scene for us? How does it happen? Uh-huh. That's a good question. <laughs> well, I think to kind of set the scene, we need to go back to my birthday in 1989, which was the day that the Exxon Valdez struck Fly Reef. And that triggered a lot of changes regulatorily, both in the U.S. and internationally, by creating the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Right. So we lived in Valdez. That's where I was stationed. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's the end of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. And so tankers frequently come in and out and fill up. They come in empty and then they depart laden. So part of the Exxon Valdez situation was that regardless of what was happening on the bridge, the ship left the traffic lanes mm-hmm. to avoid ice that was calving off of Columbia Creek Glacier. So part of Open 90 was this ice scouting idea where tugs would go out ahead of a tanker transiting the traffic lanes in certain areas within Prince William Sound and scout for ice, essentially. So you can imagine after 30 years of doing this, looking for icebergs at all hours of the night or day, it gets probably to be not so exciting as it was on day one or two. How do you report those? We have different categories of ice from brash to icebergs, and the ice scouts work with the Coast Guard's Vessel Traffic Service, which is also in Valdez, was at uh, the same unit I uh, was stationed at. And they just describe what it looks like, how heavy it is. Okay. Um, And so we could put ice scouting measures in place, which would mean that the tug would have to be tied to the 
tanker or whatnot. Like there mm-hmm. were just different levels of response to yeah. prevent another vessel from hitting Bly Reef. So Columbia Glacier is actually calving quite a bit. And as we're learning with climate change, that a lot of the glaciers are receding quickly. That was just a busier workload, really, for the tugs. I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska or lived there. When Labor Day occurs, all the tourists leave Valdez. It's like a train of RVs and campers and tourists leaving. And then we have a nice fall and then everything shuts down. You know, you have the one coffee shop open, the two restaurants and the grocery store and the gas station, but nothing else is really going on. So Valdez kind of goes to sleep in the winter, except when tugs run into (laughs) (laughs) reefs in the middle of the night. Okay, yeah. So it was December 23rd in the evening. Mm -hmm. And in Alaska, that is just about the shortest day of the year. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say that. It actually is the shortest day of the year, (laughs) coincidentally, which means you can't really see much at 6.15 in the evening. So we received a report. Tug hit Bly Reef. They felt as though they had compromised the integrity of the boat and that fuel was spilling, which is like kind of a nightmare when it's from the very type of vessel that is used to prevent this entire thing from happening. So we're a very small unit, less than 30. We have watchstanders in the Vessel Traffic Service. Then we have kind of regular office workers who stand a duty rotation. So I was notified in that position, I was the executive officer. So essentially the deputy of the unit meant to advise the commanding officer on operations and personnel and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, of course, immediately, you know, we all live no more than a mile from work. So we essentially assess the situation on the phone mm-hmm. and wound up standing up an incident command, which is a big deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So you immediately set up a command post. Oh. It's a remote Alaska, so immediately is okay. <laughs> relative. Okay, fair. Okay. And not only that, it's, you know, a day before Christmas, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it was small. But the great thing about Valdez and the, I guess, the light at the end of the rainbow with the Exxon Valdez is that we were prepared to respond to something like this. Yeah. We had practiced time and time and time again, yeah. multiple exercises and not Coast Guard, In this capacity, you're working with Coast Guard, government agencies, tribal capacities, and the industry, the responsible party. So was the Coast Guard the focal point of that coordination and just allowing other actors to plug in? or How did that work? So ultimately, in the position of my commanding officer, he was the federal on-scene coordinator. Okay. And he's designated as such. Then you have Mm -hmm. your state on-scene coordinator and then your industry responsible party representing the vessel or the company. Yeah. Well, the federal on-scene coordinator has the ultimate say. Yeah. It's really a trifecta and a conversation. And it's three of us sitting at a table discussing what we think the priorities are and how should we respond. This kind of coordination between different stakeholders is actually pretty hard to pull off in a lot of contexts. I mean, there's been volumes of reports written about like how to do this kind of crisis coordination effectively. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So there you are coordinating with these different actors. Mm -hmm. And what was the recommendation? How were things shaking out? So in the beginning, it was rough. My CEO, if I could say CEO, he had a lot more experience at these types of responses. So it was really great to learn from him. And there was a particular tool that he was seeking. And we couldn't see the fuel that was spilled, but we knew that there was fuel that was somewhere in the water. But of course, it's night 
we're not going to have sun until maybe nine or 10 the next morning. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, right. So he really wanted to have a forward looking infrared radar, which uh-huh. is basically a flare you put on the front of the ship and you can see where's the oil. And once we determined that the vessel was stable mm-hmm. and could come in to port, that was one tool. So that was a key indicator for him when that was not present on the ship. When he had directed it, that was a key indicator that things were not going well. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Essentially, we called a timeout yeah. and said nothing happens until we get the right equipment. tools on board and yeah. equipment, and mm-hmm. then and then we can proceed. And then we shook up the group responding mm-hmm. as well, and we got the right team there. You know, I said two things. One, we have exercised a lot. Yeah. And two, my commanding officer had a lot of experience with this. So yeah. when I arrived in 2009 in the summer... He essentially put me in the FOSC, the Federal Launching Coordinator seat for the exercises and things. Yeah. So it was the best thing he could have done. He just completely pulled me up and put me in his seat to act on his behalf. Of yeah. course, with guidance and coaching. Sure. So I felt better prepared. Once we got things moving, he mm-hmm. essentially delegated it to me for the next couple of days to just make sure things are running smoothly and whatnot. And of course, he lived two doors down from me, so <laughs> I you know, also couldn't get away, but no, no, it was fine. I'm just kidding. But um, So it was a great opportunity. And es- essentially, the ship came in, and the next morning, we had a tool in the box with NOAA, a scientific mm-hmm. support coordinator. In each region mm-hmm. across the country, we have a scientific support coordinator from NOAA who can help us with trajectories and such. And so he said, well, by 0900 on the 24th, you'll see the sheen here. And there were a lot of naysayers, but sure as heck, hit really? 9 a.m. the next day. Boom, it was right exactly where he had said. So we were able to get resources on scene. Also uh-huh. a benefit of Exxon Valdez. There's probably more boom in Valdez, Alaska than anywhere. Uh, boom is the equipment that you use to clean up the oil. Right, right, right. And, okay. to, yeah. and to filter it. Yeah. So we had all the equipment we needed mm-hmm. to act. Aside from the rough start and yeah. the actual event happening, we couldn't have asked for any more support. Mm-hmm. So smart women, smart power. Do you feel that your being a woman affected how you approached the crisis response? Or if not, why not? I really, at that time, 2009... I raised my hand in 1994, Mm -hmm. and he was probably the first mentor I ever had. Yeah. You know, I guess I'm of the generation, hopefully the last generation, who didn't really see gender. Sure. Um, Sure. And so I was completely not aware that maybe it would be a factor. But thinking about it now, I stand by that. I think he saw me for who I was. He had handpicked me for the job Mm -hmm. to be the executive officer, knowing my experience level. He's very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think he saw me for me and saw the things that I needed to develop as a leader to be successful in the organization. Mm -hmm. And also in working with the other government agencies and uh, industry, I didn't see that as an issue either. We had a very well-established machine that ran smoothly in crisis. It's a really good point that you raised. I mean, because I would consider myself of that generation as well. Like, we didn't think about gender the last thing I wanted to do for the majority of my career was talk about being a woman in international security. I'm here because I have something to contribute, not because I'm a woman. But in that, the powerful role that men have played in my life as mentors, again, seeing me, recognizing me and pushing me forward to excel. I mean, that's something that is noteworthy as well. That assignment was very life-changing for me. It was probably my personal best leadership 
experience. Sure. Call it pebble in the oh, nerdy yeah. world, right? <laughs> Thanks to um, another man, Charlie Coiro, who's a civilian at the Leadership Development Center. But we, in reflecting on turning points in my career, this is one. I, I had this first commanding officer. I had another commanding mm-hmm. officer. And that assignment was the first time I felt seen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the later part of my tour there, my assignment there that I started to recognize, oh, there's this gender thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. which maybe good, bad or indifferent. I don't know. Yeah. It's what you do with that information. I think that matters. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. The ridiculous o'clock in the morning yeah. <laughs> in Halifax has <laughs> been a fascinating conversation and just always a delight to hang out with you. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.